0: Well, church, my name is Tellus Fuller. I'm the youth pastor here on staff and really excited to continue our series that we started a couple weeks ago called Welcome to Church. Welcome to Church. A few weeks ago, Pastor AJ started us off with an amazing message about really welcoming us to church and not just welcoming us into the building of the church. Although culture might see it that way, that the world is opening up, that we are coming back in, that the world and the church is now open again. But the message wasn't so much catered to the building of the church as much as the body of the church. Not so much catered to the place that we gather in, but the people that we are. The ecclesia, the called out ones. That we are in Christ. Last week we discussed how Paul says that we are a new creation in Christ. How the old has passed away and the new has come. That I am now a different thing than what I was before. That in Christ, I am a new creation. We talked about what it means for us to be made new in Christ. And today we're going to take a different look at what it means to be welcomed And we're going to take a look at really how Jesus welcomes. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verse 13. And it says this. He went out again beside the sea, and all of the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What I want to title this message today is welcome to sinners. Welcome to sinners. Will you pray with me? Lord, would you open our eyes and open our ears? Lord, let us see and hear what you want us to If you're not here, Lord, in our presence, this will be nothing more than just encouragement on a weekend. But Lord, if you're here, then we can be transformed for a lifetime. Holy Spirit, we invite you in. Would you make little of me and more of you, God, that we might see you rightly. Father, we love you so much. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You ever been lost before? Like, really lost? I'm not talking like you're driving and Google Maps went out and Waze took you in the wrong direction and then you had to get back on the right road. I'm talking about, have you ever been lost I remember um, when I was in Disney as a kid, and the reason I thought about the story is because we, uh, some of your pastors and leaders on the staff, got a chance to go to a church conference this past week with Every Nation. The the group and the family of churches that we call home, that we're associated with. And your staff got a lot better this past week. We learned and were reminded of the mission of the gospel, of making disciples, of establishing and planning churches, of doing campus ministry, of loving people, world missions, of the gospel. We were reminded about unity. It was a really, really great great week. And it reminded me of a really, really horrible time. I remember uh, when I was like five or six, uh, me and my family went to Disney World. And as we were in Disney World, uh, I'm one of seven kids, and so we are just a huge tribe of people. Nine people going to Disney World, you can only imagine. And I'm like five or six at the time, and I remember it's like one of our first times at Disney World ever. I don't really remember what park we were at. I don't remember, like, where we were going. I don't really remember much of that. All I remember... is that I was walking with my family and we knew the rules. Like dad taught us, we knew the rules that if you were in the group, you had to see somebody, be touching somebody. We were always supposed to stay close to you. If you looked up, you can't, don't make sure that you, you have your eyes on here or there or the right or Mickey or whatever. And as we're in the land of Mickey, what I do is that I'm walking with my family and I have my eyes wide open and I'm looking around and I'm seeing everything. And then the next thing I know is I look and I don't recognize anybody. So I'm looking around like five or six years old and I'm looking, I'm like, you're not dead and you're not dead. Oh, and you have this moment of panic. I don't know if you've ever been lost, but I had this moment of panic and you're in this giant amusement park by yourself, this five-year-old and listen, I just start bawling, right? I'm crying. I'm freaking out. I don't know where my family's at. All I see is a bunch of strangers and they're walking by like a freeway and I'm looking around and, and then all of a sudden there was this, this, incredibly nice lady. If, if I knew I would have given her like an amazing review on Disney's website, but she came by and she, this Disney lady comes by and she sees me and she's like, honey, are you okay? And I'm like, no, I'm not okay. And she's like, do you know where your daddy is? I was like, no. And she's like, here, come with me. And she brings me into the store, the gift shop, whatever the restaurant. She brings me into the restaurant and she's sitting with me and comforting me and asking me questions. And like, do you know, like, what does your daddy look like? I was like, I don't know. She's like, what's his name? I was like, Brett. And so like asking me all these questions and she's like holding me and comforting me. And as she's sitting with me, I'm just like bawling. Like, I don't know what's going on. And, And all I remember really is like this weird tunnel vision of like, it's me but I'm like this short and I just see Disney through tears. Like that's all I really remember. It's just like Disney through tears in this moment. And I'm sitting there. And then as I'm sitting with this amazing Disney lady, uh, all of a sudden I see dad walk up. And he's like frantically looking around and he sees me, runs to me and he's like, son. And we have this moment. And he hugs me and he finds me. And it's this, this, this really, really great moment. And, and I remember as soon as he came up to me, he's like, son, where were you? And I was like, father, didn't you know, I'd be in Mickey's house. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if I did? Um, it's that's a deep Christian joke. If you don't know. Um, <laughs> but he comes and finds me, and all of a sudden, Dad and I are reunited. And, 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 and I just remember, like, this moment of feeling really, really lost. And some of us, I really feel like we are not just lost physically in, Disney's, in Disney, but we're lost spiritually. That we're wide-eyed in this big world, looking around, and all of a sudden, we look up, and we realize, I'm lost. And the Bible usually use the word lost or far from God as sinners. Sinners. Welcome to sinners. Now, before we go any further in this message, that word can be kind of triggering for a lot of us. We can have that word be maybe used against us in our past. A sinner. Maybe righteousness was used against you. Maybe repentance was used against you. Maybe holiness or sin was used against you. And although these things are true, it can be hurtful for us. And as we go into this story and talk about Mark chapter two, I really want to say one thing before we go any further is that grace covenant church is a church for sinners. Grace covenant church is a church for the lost. Grace Covenant Church is a church for people who are spiritually looking for the answer. It's not a prerequisite that you would be uh, uh, spiritually mature before you're found in community. It's not a prerequisite for us. But that you would come as you are. I believe that there are only two people in life. There are people who are sinners and not saved by grace and sinners who are saved by grace. And that has nothing to do with the sinner's effort. That has everything to do with the savior's effort. So as we jump into this message called welcome to sinners, I do want you to feel welcome. I do want you to feel welcome. That this is a place not to be ostracized or kicked out, but a place to find a God who's been looking for you. Jesus came to save the lost and save the sinners. And as we jump into the story, I want us to get a clear picture of how Jesus interacts with sinners. And as we go into this story, really what we see here is that there are four groups and in Mark chapter two, verse 13 through 17, just four groups of people. We have followers. We have Pharisees. We have sinners and we have a savior. We have followers. We have Pharisees. We have uh, sinners and we have a savior. Now the followers of Jesus are simply that, that there was a crowd. And as we see in Mark chapter two, verse 13, as he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Now, this is only the second chapter of Mark. But if you've read Mark, Mark wastes no time talking about Jesus' work and his ministry. Mark jumps into it, first chapter, that Jesus has already healed many. He's teaching about the kingdom, that he's forgiven sins. Jesus has done a lot by Mark chapter 2. And so Jesus already has a crowd. A crowd has been following him, trying to see what Jesus is about. And he's teaching them in the same way. And he comes to Galilee and Capernaum. And what happens is that Jesus has been teaching them and showing them not just in power or not just in miracles about what the kingdom of God is, but he's also teaching them what the kingdom of God is. And I don't find it a coincidence that it says that as he was teaching them, he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus at the tax booth and says, follow me. What I notice here is that there will always be onlookers to see how the followers of Jesus treat the world. If you're not sure of that, I just want to make you aware that you as a believer and a follower of Jesus are being watched. Your life is under scrutiny. It's under study of how you treat the world. And Jesus is teaching them, not just in in, in miracles and signs and wonders, but he's also teaching them in action. What he does here... As he's teaching them, he finds Levi. What I believe that Jesus is trying to tell us in this story is maybe he's showing us. He says, here, I don't want to just teach you about my miracles. I want to teach you how I treat the lost. He's teaching us in this moment what it looks like to invite sinners into your world. And this is Jesus saying, my invitation isn't just for people who are like you. It's not. My invitation, Jesus says, isn't just for people who sin like you. My invitation is for all people. And Jesus comes as these onlookers are are following him. Jesus teaches them a lesson. I wonder, what lesson are you teaching people about Jesus? As people are watching your life, examining what Jesus looks like by watching you, Christians, little Christ's, As you are following Jesus, what does the world understand about how you love them? There will always be onlookers to see how the people of God treat the world. And then we get into the Pharisees. The Pharisees are this uh, religious group of people. These these people who were um, incredibly holy incredibly set apart, incredibly religious, incredibly moral. They were the, the upper echelon of the religious society in this time. And as Pharisees, they were really bent and concerned with their image. They were always concerned with how am I perceived? What do I look like? How do I not make, how do I make sure that I don't defile myself? How do I make sure that I'm keeping myself pure? How do I make sure that I'm following the rules? And an interesting thing that they say is they say in Mark chapter 2, why does this man eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does this man do that? It's an interesting question when the most religious people question why the most religious man was eating with sinners. And if we don't find that strange, I think we need to. That these Pharisees weren't just saying, Why is this man eating with tax collectors and sinners? What they're really asking because they're all concerned with themselves and their whole focus is facing inward. They were thinking about what happens to me. They really were asking the question of what will happen to me if I eat with tax collectors and sinners? Maybe some of us think that now. What will happen to me if I hang out with X, Y, or Z? What will happen to me and my reputation if I do this or that or am associated with them? We are afraid of being misunderstood, so we don't even try and understand. We separate ourselves. We remove ourselves from being close to sinners. The Pharisees were always worried about their reputation and their holiness and their power and their control. And, And maybe some of us still think this way. But Jesus was actually concerned with the people that The Pharisees asked this question, why does this man eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees, which leads into our third group of the sinners, the sinners. We have this this group of people who were unrighteous and yet really, really attracted to the righteous one. And, And when I hear this story and read the story, a lot of the times I do think, What was it about Jesus that made him so attractive to people who weren't like him? And what is it about us that makes us so unattractive to people that aren't like us? I mean, that's not news to us, right? As followers of Jesus, that we're not the most, sometimes the most attractive people in the world. We're not the people that others want to always be associated with. But this is the issue is... In culture, the sinners were ostracized and pushed out and, and, and set aside. And, and actually there were rules that if you ate or associated with people like this, then you actually would defile yourself. That this was a, a precautionary measure. That I can't be seen with them. I can't eat with them because if I did, it would mess me up. And when we think about the idea of sin, it's really important for us to understand this truth. That their sin was... An issue, but it wasn't the issue. The issue was their belief. Their issue was their belief. Now, it evidences in the sin, but sometimes we get confused by this because we think that when we sin, we are sinners. But that's not what the Bible teaches. We are sons of Adam. We are daughters of Adam. So that means that our sin is inherent within us. So when we sin, we are just evidencing that we are sinners, not making ourselves sinners. Does that make sense? That, that our sin does not make us a sinner. Our sin is an evidence that we are sinners. Why does that matter? Because if we ever sin less, that does not make us sinless if we all of a sudden become better moral individuals, that does not help us in our righteousness with God because the, 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 the standard for being right with God is perfection. So if we're trying to reach perfection and we settle for sinning less, we are missing the mark. That's why we need a savior. That Jesus did not just make us able to sin less by imputing his righteousness to us, we are now sinless. Does that make sense? When we have a clear understanding of these groups of people, I think we can get into the real understanding of how Jesus associates with sinners. And before we get to uh, the real meat of the message and talking about how Jesus really associates with sinners, it's really important that we understand that Jesus was not after behavior modification. He was not. Jesus was after a heart transformation. A spiritual transformation. He was after making us come alive in Christ. That's a little plug for our 715 series we're doing right now in in July. It's called come alive. You should come on Wednesday. He was making us come alive in Christ, not just making us a better moral person. And I want to let you know that here at Grace Covenant Church, our aim has been, is not, will never be to make you a better moral individual. Now that might happen and I think it should happen, but it's born out of the seed of the gospel that your fruit of being a moral individual or a good person is born from a renewed life that Jesus Christ died for you to have. So if you're coming here trying to be made better morally, trying to be more ethical, trying to cleanse your conscience, that very well might happen. But I want to let you know that's not our goal. We are aiming for for our presentation of Jesus to be one where you can see him and see his grace and his forgiveness, his truth and his sacrifice and say, I'm a sinner, I need him and he will make you new. We are presenting Jesus to you, not a better moral life, a new life entirely. When we talk about the followers, the Pharisees and the sinners, now we get to talk about our Savior, Jesus. It's... It's, it's really the one that we want to focus on in this passage. And, and one of the beautiful parts of this passage, as we see how Jesus encounters this man named Levi, it is that we have to understand really about how Levi was interpreted and received in the culture. That Levi was actually the man who actually, his name was changed to Matthew. If you know M- Matthew, this was the last time he was even referred to as Levi in the gospels. In, Matthew, in uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 3, we actually get him, and he's labeled. We get the disciples list, and his name is now Matthew. And there's this, there's this shift between chapter 2 and chapter 3. But in chapter 2, what we find is that Matt, Levi excuse me, is a tax collector. A tax collector might not be that big of a deal to us, and we might just associate that to the IRS and say, yeah, nobody likes them, but like, that's not an issue, right? But a tax collector in this time was way more than that. What a tax collector was his tax collector was working on behalf of the Roman empire, a people who were oppressing the Jews who were dominating over the Jews. The Jews were trying to get out from underneath Rome's foot and tax collectors. What they would do is they would receive a tax from the Jews towards Rome. But what they would also do is they'd also take a little bit off the top for themselves. So if your tax was 10, 10, They say, well, I'd really appreciate like a new chair. So I'm going to say it's 12. If the tax was 20, but they all of a sudden wanted a new donkey, they could just say 30, give 20 to Rome, keep 10 for themselves. Now that's bad in itself, but where it gets a little bit worse is that if you were a Jew in this time, as Levi was, you weren't just working for Rome. You were working against your own people. So Levi is not just somebody who's despised by their culture, but despised by his people. He was stealing from his own people on behalf of Rome and keeping a little bit more for himself. That's who Levi is. He's somebody who's betraying his own people, working against his own people, and actually working for the one who is oppressing his people. When we look at all these different people and groups in this story. It's really as simple as this, that we find that the gospel treats sinners differently than the world does. And maybe even differently than the religious leaders do in a world. That's always going to ask what will happen to me in a church. That's always going to ask what will happen to us. The gospel always asks what's going to happen to them. In a world that's always so inward-facing and self-focused, trying to preserve myself, save myself, think and worry about myself, we are always considering ourselves. And in a church, even sometimes, we might say, well, what will happen to us if we welcome sinners? Will we look different. Will we start to be defiled like the Pharisees thought? Will we start to lose our convictions? Will we start to compromise? What will happen to us? In a world that says, What happens to me? In a church that might say, What happens to us? The gospel says, What will happen to them? This is where Jesus actually approaches Levi that God approached a sinner. It, it, it's beautiful. Passage, because Jesus sees him, it says. It says in, in uh, verse um, 14, as he passed by, he saw. As he passed by, he saw. It, it's, this, it's this amazing thing where Jesus puts himself in a position to see. That he sees Levi. And when he sees Levi, what happens is that he, he I've learned that proximity brings perspective. That the closer you get to something the more perspective you're going to have on that thing. And oftentimes we remove ourselves from the world so much that we have no perspective to have any compassion on them. And Jesus is, is a man and a God who passes by and sees Levi. The Pharisees didn't even want to be associated with sinners, but this is a God who passes by to see. And if God passes by to see... What that tells me is that the Lord is also looking for you. That he doesn't just see you, but he's looking for you. And I don't know if you're in this room feeling very forgotten by God. Maybe even very forgotten by this world. Maybe even kind of forgotten by the church. But I want to tell you something. Is that Jesus looks for. Those that others overlook. And when the world rejects somebody, Jesus oftentimes reaches that person. And so if you feel like a reject, you feel like that word sinner is just throwing off things in your mind and you just have buzzers going off everywhere, alarm, alarm, this is bad, I don't like this, get it away from me. I wanna let you know that you have a God and there's a God who drew close, who passed by, who saw you and didn't reject you like others did, but actually reaches out to you, didn't overlook you like others have, but actually looks out for you. That there's a God who came from heaven to earth and actually embodies this truth that God came close. If you're a sinner, I want to say welcome. Welcome. Because there's a God who sees you. There's a God who sees you. There's not just a God who's looking at the world and is just rolling his eyes, but there's a God who looks down at you personally and sees you. Uh, we see in verse 15, it says, many tax collectors and sinners were with him. As he reclined at the table, many tax collectors and sinners were with him. I, I always wonder, like, what made Jesus so attractive to these tax collectors and these sinners? Like, what was it? Like, why was Jesus so attractive to them? And maybe sometimes even right now, the church is so unattractive to them. I think the answer is found in John chapter one, John chapter one, verse 14. It says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the one and only son from the father. And listen to this. This is the part full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. He's full of it. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Sometimes as believers, I really believe that we have put an or where God has put an and. Full of grace or truth. That we sometimes are full of grace or truth. That we see uh, uh, an example in scripture that... Jesus finds this woman caught in adultery and he says that your sins have been forgiven and go and sin no more. Some of us say our sins have been forgiven and we can do whatever we want. We see the Great Commission, Matthew 28, where Jesus says, go and make disciples. Now we have gone, but we kind of forget that disciple making part. We see the great commandment. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Sometimes we put an or where God puts an and. We start placing these things as almost, if I do this, I don't know if I can do that. And, and, and sometimes in, in our lives, we have this or mentality of grace and truth. What am I saying? I'm saying that, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And sometimes we often lean towards one or the other. If we lean towards truth, what happens is that we are all truth and no compassion. That we all of a sudden become judgmental and unapproachable condemning. And nobody wants to come near us, even though we might have what they need. Or we are all grace and no truth. And we end up not having any convictions and thinking we'll scare people off with our religion. We choose either grace or truth. If you're like me, you probably realize I lean towards that one or that one. I lead towards the truth without a lot of grace, or I lean towards the grace without a lot of truth. And what we find here is that Jesus is full of grace and truth. I think this is the reason why unbelievers and sinners were so drawn to him. It's because he gave them the truth that they were searching for and also had the compassion that they needed. Sometimes we separate those two, act like they can't coexist. We pull them apart in the church and we never embody the fullness of Christ. And the truth of the fact is, is that we need grace and truth because here it is, church. The truth is, is that grace will save you, but the truth will set you free. Grace is the thing that saves us. We are saved by grace through faith. It's by grace that we have been saved. It's not an act of work so that no man can boast. It's true. And we know that the truth will set us free. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me, that there is a freedom in the truth. But so often we pick either or. What can we do to be more attractive to the world? And I'm not saying in a a compromising way, guys. I'm saying what does the world need from us? It needs grace and truth. That's what the world needs from you. It needs us to be married just like Jesus was to these two things that are grace and truth. Both are necessary to follow Jesus and for the world to know him why because the grace of Jesus will save us and the truth of Jesus will set us free. You know Jesus had a lot of titles in the gospels even in the prophets too. And we can't go through all of them but one of my favorite titles that Jesus had it was in Luke chapter 7 and he was called the friend of sinners. The friend of sinners. Welcome to sinners that Jesus is your friend. I don't know if you've heard that recently, but Jesus is a friend of sinners. And that does not mean that Jesus condones sin. That means that Jesus isn't merely after a behavior modification. Jesus didn't wait for somebody to be better before he loved them. Jesus didn't wait for people to look like him before he loved them. And I wonder if we could be a church, what would our church look like if we didn't wait for people to get better before we loved them? What would our city look like if we were a church that embodied grace and truth, married them at the cross and loved our community, loved sinners, loved unrighteous people who have not yet received the grace of God and walked into the freedom, been made new in Christ. What if we were those people who married grace and truth? And then all of the sudden, a world just like Levi was, is drawn to Jesus. They're drawn to him. That's what it looks like to be a friend of sinners. And Jesus says in verse 15, the, the, the sick, excuse me, the well are not the ones who need a doctor, but the sick. See, Jesus didn't wait for them to be better before he went to them. What good is a doctor for the well? I mean, Jesus was speaking just really practically. He's saying, the people who need me aren't the people who are like you. They're the people who aren't like you. Maybe the, the people who need the grace of Jesus extended from you to them aren't the people who you're used to associating with. They're the, they're the outcasts. They're the Levi sitting in tax booths. Isn't it beautiful how Jesus didn't wait till Matt, Levi was out of his tax booth? Let Jesus called him inside of his tax booth. Maybe you feel like you're inside of your tax booth, but you're still in your sin. And you're wondering, God, when I get out of this sin, maybe then you would call me. Maybe then you would want me. Maybe then you would receive me. But I want to let you know that God does not wait for you to get out of your sin before he calls you into love. But Jesus, the person of God, is going to love you exactly where you are. And the beautiful thing, I don't want you to mishear me. Jesus loves you exactly where you are. And... He loves you way too much to keep you there. The truth will set you free. He's a, he's a friend of sinners. If you're like me, you usually place yourself at the center or the hero of the story. It's like um, you look at a story like this and you're like, all right, well, maybe... Maybe I'm like a Pharisee. It's like I'm I'm pretty religious. I I grew up in church. Maybe like I I know a lot, and and maybe I don't really accept people as much as I could. But maybe I'm a Pharisee, and I'm and I think about that, and I'm like, no, that's not me. And then I think like maybe I'm maybe I'm the follower. I'm the follower, and like I am following Jesus. So maybe I'm the follower, and, and God's teaching me, and he and he's doing all these things, and maybe I'm an onlooker to what it what it looks like to welcome people into the world, and I'm like, no, it's not me either. And then I obviously rule out the savior because it's not me. And I'm like, man, that stinks. Because there's one left. I'm not the follower. I'm not the savior. I'm not the Pharisee. I'm the sinner. I'm the sinner. That I'm, I'm Levi. I was sitting in my tax booth and Jesus came to me that I was sitting in my sin and Jesus passed by and saw me. And I don't know how your story looks, but I know that's your story that you were sitting in your sin. And all of the sudden there's a God who saw you and then sat with you. He invited you in. And I'm not sure what that looks like practically and specifically in your actual life. But all I know is that I didn't come to Jesus. Jesus came to me. And when I think about the grace of God, it's so easy for me to place myself as the hero of my story. And to say, I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who did that. And at the end of the day, I know and I realize that I was Levi. That I was not good enough for God. It's true. You're not good enough for God. And I don't mean to say that to to insult you. I mean to say that to awaken you that you're not good enough for God. And when I realize that I was not good enough for God, what happens is that Jesus comes to me and Jesus sees me and Jesus sits with me and then Jesus saves me. So what that means is that I don't have to be good enough for God because God was good enough for me. God was good enough for you. God wasn't just satisfactory. He was good enough for you. He was good enough in the place of you. He was good enough for you. Which means that now I don't have to be. That Jesus came to Levi. And and the beautiful part of this story as we close is that We read about Levi right here, and that is the last time he's called Levi. Why? Because Jesus is in the business of taking Levi's and making them Matthews. That Levi was the man in the tax booth. Levi was the tax collector. Levi was the one associated with sinners. Levi was the one who was far away from God. But Matthew is the one who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Matthew was the one who followed Jesus for three years. Matthew was the missionary who was sent to Ethiopia. Matthew was the one who was martyred on behalf of Jesus. God is in the business of taking Levi's and turning them into Matthew's. And if you're wondering, I don't know if that's me. I want to let you know, don't think that your sin is too powerful for God somehow. Don't excuse yourself from your purpose in Christ because this is what he's in the business of doing. He's welcoming sinners and pushing them them, crafting them, making them, helping them by the power of the Holy Spirit into their purpose of being a Matthew. That's what Jesus does. That's what he does. Welcome to sinners. He picks us up out of our sin, out of our tax booth and into our purpose. That's what Jesus does. And if you're Listening to this and, or you're watching this and you're like, that's a lot of information. I, I have good news and I have bad news for you. I have good news and I have bad news for you. The bad news is that we are all desperately sinful and we need saving. That I am desperately wicked and I need someone to save me. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And the good news is, is that Jesus loves you beyond your wildest dreams and came to do just that. There's a story in the gospel of Matthew, actually. And it says this, it says, Matthew chapter 18, verse 12. What do you think? Jesus speaking. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? So often in scripture, we are associated and likened to sheep while God is likened and associated to a shepherd. And here we see a story that Jesus is telling about how he treats those who are far away. You might feel like you're one of the hundred sheep who has all of a sudden ran away, who has all of a sudden found themselves lost, who has looked up and realized, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And there's a truth in scripture right here that you have a God, you have a shepherd, you have a father who will leave the 99 on the mountain just so that he can go and search for that one. You're that valuable to him that he's searching for you, that he's looking for you. He sees you. He sits with you. He's trying to save you. That there are 99 others who have stayed and there's one who's left. He doesn't say, oh, who cares about the one? I still have 99 left. He says, that one is so valuable to me. And he's not saying that it's more valuable. He's saying it's a priority. That you are a priority to God. And we see here in this story that I'm the one. I'm the one that Jesus ran to go and find And as he goes and finds me, I'm so encouraged that, 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 to be honest, Matthew is kind of like that lady at Disneyland, right? I mean, whose fault was it when I got lost at Disneyland? It was my fault. And who made it their responsibility to go and find me? My dad did. Whose fault is it that we are lost spiritually? It's our fault. And who made it their responsibility to go and find you? Jesus did. What I find with shepherds and sheep is that when a sheep goes astray, it is never the sheep's job to find the shepherd. Have you thought about that? That if a sheep leaves, it's not the sheep's job to go back and find the shepherd, but it's the shepherd's job to go back and find the sheep. If you feel lost right now, I wanna encourage you. I wanna give you a hope. That even though you feel lost, you have a God who made it his responsibility to go and find you. And just like Disneyland, when I got lost, my dad came and found me. Even though it was my fault. Even though I did something wrong. Even though I didn't do what I was supposed to do. God and dad made it his responsibility to go and find me. And it's by grace that I've been saved. It's not an act of work so that no man can boast. And when I hear, when when, when we look at this story, as I close, the last thing is that this does not excuse us from our responsibility. This does not mean, oh, well, now we're off the hook. God is the one who comes and finds me. I'm the one who's lost. Or maybe you're like, well, I'm not lost. So what's my job now? Your job is to be that really nice lady at Disney World. That's your job. That you're supposed to be the one who sees the lost sheep, grabs them, sits with them comforts them asks them points them says do you know where your father is says do you know where you're supposed to be says how did you get lost do you know where you're supposed to go where was the last place you saw him because you're not the god who saves you might not be the sheep that's lost but you are the person that comforts you are the church of jesus christ Who is supposed to be the people who comfort the lost while their dad finds them. You're not the one who saves them. You're not the one who's lost. So would we be a church that goes to sinners and says, welcome, let me comfort you. Welcome, let me sit with you. Welcome, let me see you. I'm not going to save you, but I will sit with you and wait for your father to find you. That's the role of the church. Can we be that church? Can you be that church? JJ told us it's not just this this organization in this building and this conglomerate of things. No, you, you're the hope. You're the hope carrier. It's in you. It's not from the stage. If we're waiting for a sinner to come and sit in this church to hear somebody from a stage, we're in the wrong place. They're not gonna come in this church and just sit and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh my gosh, I need to follow Jesus. That might happen, but let me tell you something, that it's you. Welcome to sinners. That's you. That God took someone like us and said, I want you to be the hope of the world. I want you to carry my hope. I want you to welcome sinners. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you so much. God, we love you so much. And that love is dwarfed by the love that you have for us. It doesn't even compare. It doesn't even even register. And our love, Lord, is birthed out of the place where you first loved us. Thank you for leaving 99 and finding me. Thank you for seeing me as you passed by. And saving me. Lord, would you give our church the grace. To sit and comfort those who are lost. So that their dad can find them.